Are you ready for the word this morning? I think we would all agree that life comes with issues. It's impossible to go through life and not encounter uh, some sort of issues as you go. And as far as I know, and as I've seen over the years, many of those issues stem or they have their root system, I guess is a better way to say it, in things that happened in our childhood. And then we just grew into those things. And they still have a way of troubling us today. We've lost the association because it happened so many years ago. And we don't realize that things that would make us angry today or make us jealous today have their root system in an issue of life that happened to us probably as a very young child and just imprinted our hearts in some way. Emotional issues that have a way of imprinting little tender hearts as we're growing. And so today, what I want to do is I want to begin a new series, and I'm calling this series The Issues of Life. Now, if that phrase sounds familiar, you'll be happy to know it comes from the scriptures. In fact, the writer Solomon is the only one who recorded those four words, and we see those words in Proverbs chapter 4, and I want to begin at verse 20 and read through verse 23. Solomon wrote these words. He said, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Guard thy heart with all diligence, for out of it flow, look at those words, the issues of life. He says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. And then he says, keep them within your heart. In that opening sentence, he names three body parts. Your ears, your eyes, your heart. And there is such a relationship between ears, eyes, and heart. You see, the ears... And the eyes are the gateway into the heart. So it does matter what comes into our ears. It does matter what comes through our eyes. It's like a freeway, if you will. There's a lot of traffic on it. Our subconscious mind misses nothing. It never sleeps. It's always at work recording data, picking up things. Now, our conscious mind maybe can only concentrate on a few things at one time. But the subconscious is always recording this data that's coming in through our eye gates and our ear gates. And then our mouth, our mouth becomes the way, in a sense, for that traffic to move out. And now this scripture begins to make sense for out of the mouth flows the abundance of the heart. It's usually expressed in our words, so it comes out through our words. So what he says here is he says, do not let them out of your sight. What is them? It's the words. He said, pay attention to my words. Do not let them. Now, this is not just his words. Remember, all scripture was given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. This is God's word that he downloaded into Solomon's heart. And he said, do not let my words. In other words, do not let God's word. 
He said, do not let God's word out of your sight. And then he says, keep them. What's them? The words, God's words. He says, keep them within your heart for they, what's they? It's the words, God's words. See how important the word is? He said, for they are life to those who find them. What's them? I I sound like a broken record. It's God's words. There is nothing more vital for us than God's words. And whether he's speaking to you just through your meditation, through song, through the scriptures, his words is where we find life. We find life in his words. And sometimes I think we underestimate the power of God's word. As we're reading the Bible, sometimes people can get a little weary because they're not getting the revelation. Maybe maybe nothing's jumping off the page. Friends, I'm telling you, it's doing more to you than you know. It's nourishing you. It's creating something on the inside of you. And eventually it will all come together and it begins to change the way you think. And then he says, guard thy heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Now, that's kind of a funny statement, isn't it? The issues of life, okay? Out of it flow the issues of life. Literally what that is saying is out of your heart flows the fountainhead of life. It means the wellspring of life. It refers to the starting place of life. He's saying the fountainhead of life, the wellspring of life, the starting point of life is your heart. And he said, your heart is influenced by what comes in through its ear gates, what comes in through its eye gates. That's why we have to learn what to reject and what to embrace as it's coming in. And understand which covenant you're under. Change a man's heart and you will change a man's habits. That is pure grace. Do you know what religion says? Religion says change a man's habits and you'll change a man's heart. That is simply not true. That's not true. So the first message from this series that I'm going to be ministering is actually called the defense of the gospel. And friends, uh, I believe that we ought to defend the gospel, but at the same time, I believe the gospel defends us. I do. Across the landscape of this great country, uh, this great nation, our world, if you will, we are facing issues that have disrupted our lives. I don't think anybody would argue with that point. Issues that threaten our civil liberties and our human rights. Issues that are beginning to censor our freedom of religion, censor our freedom of speech. Issues that weaken the very fabric of our nuclear family. Issues that have come to kill, steal, and destroy. So what is our response in a situation like this? We won't deny the issues are there. How do we respond to them? That's my question to the Lord. How do I respond to the issues of life? Well, the person who said, the thief cometh not but for to kill, steal, and destroy, also said without taking his next breath, but I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Who said those words? Jesus said those words. So what he's doing, he's saying, listen, I'm not going to deny that there's an enemy out there. And his mission is to kill, steal, and destroy. But you put your attention on me. You put your attention on eternal life because I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. 
So as we face the fraternal twins of chaos and COVID, that is our response. Our response is we take courage. We take courage in Jesus's words, not in what's going on, but we take courage that he has a plan that will orchestrate us through this and he will do an amazing work. As Valerie said earlier, how great is our God? You'll never know until you face a problem that's bigger than you, how great your God is. You'll never know unless you're facing trying to have a child for 10 years and then you finally give up in your own strength and you stand just on his word. And then in six weeks later, Sarah was there in the birthing room when that baby was born. That baby didn't go anywhere else when left the hospital, came home with our daughter. And that's a much bigger miracle behind all that, but it's a beautiful miracle. So what is Jesus saying when he's saying this stuff about eternal life? He says, for I am the fountainhead of life. I am your wellspring of life. I am the starting point of your life. And that starting point, that wellspring, that fountainhead begins in a man's heart. That's where it begins. The human heart is like a printing press. A printing press is influenced by the data that has been sent to it. The chaos that we're witnessing on our streets right now has, yes, its origin in evil, its root system in evil, but it's taken root in men and women's hearts. Reparations are not essential when the heart realizes that its nourishment, its wellspring, its fountainhead, its provision, its flow comes from the fountainhead of life, Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm going to say something that's going to make the religious people mad. This is just what the Holy Spirit said to me yesterday. See, people think we owe, somebody owes somebody something. You don't owe anybody nothing. Jesus doesn't owe us anything. He's already paid for everything. And guess what? You don't owe him anything. See, religious people won't like that. You say, oh, wait a minute now, Mark, I owe him my life. No, you don't. If you owe him anything, then that means his blood was not sufficient. His grace was not sufficient. You're trying to help pay for what he's already done for you. You don't owe him anything. And you know what that does? That gets you off the hook of trying to serve him in a capacity that is all about works because I owe you everything. I have a sense, yes, that I want to give to him. I want to serve in a sense. I want to work in a sense, but not because I feel like I still owe him something. He's already paid for everything for me. He's canceled my debt. He's washed away my sin. He's paid for everything. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians, amen, chapter 6 and verse 20, we find these words. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Chaos stems from hearts that have been imprinted with corrupt data, the data of hatred and abuse, the data of lies and abandonment and disappointment. I'm talking about people that have been imprinted with fatherlessness and godlessness, and guns, and gangs, and wars, and violence, and drugs. They live in neighborhoods like this. This is what they get imprinted with. This is what they grow up seeing. It's going through their eye gates. It's coming through their ear gates. Every way they turn, they see this 24-7. So it's no wonder we're dealing with folks that are so hurting and so troubled. 
And then we get imprinted in more subtle ways, imprinted with the propaganda and disparaging narrative of the mainstream media. I think you know what I'm talking about. Imprinted with the breakdown of higher education. These are just but a few of the irresponsible culprits that have been killing, stealing, and destroying our kids for a long time. I'm talking about people that have never known the love and grace that flows from the wellspring of life, namely Jesus Christ. Friends, let me give you a newsflash here. Printing presses don't make things up. They don't just randomly create things. A printing press has no desire. It has no will. It has no mind. It has no feelings. It has no emotions. It has no ability to shape its own narrative. It merely prints that which it has been programmed with. Does that make sense? What you feed it, it prints. What's my point? If a man meditates on guilt, shame, and fear, then he will publish guilt, shame, and fear, and it will show up in his words, it will show up in his actions. If a child is subjected to condemnation and violence, then that child will circulate condemnation and violence. If we are tutored by a performance-driven ideology or religion, then like a street corner paper boy, we will herald a message about God that you have to perform to please him. You see, what goes in comes out. <laughs> Remember, our hearts are like printing presses. They print from that which they've been influenced by. Now, did you know this? That a printing press does not favor truth over lies. It doesn't favor grace over legalism. In fact, it doesn't favor freedom over bondage. A printing press is void of emotions and impartial to feelings. It's unprejudiced to black and white. The purpose of a printing press is to publish issues and publications. That's what it's there for. Now, let me talk in the natural here for a second. As much as food moves from our mouths to our stomachs, likewise, information moves through our ears and our eyes to our heart. Ears and eyes that have bombarded and assaulted with a lifetime of negative issues will eventually make the heart grow sick. That's all we're dealing with, sick hearts. Don't throw anybody under the bus. God's got a plan for them. The Father has a plan for people with sick hearts. Hear the words of Solomon that I read. Pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Man's greatest need is to know the unconditional love and grace of God. And he needs to know that he's forever forgiven. He needs to know that. Those truths are in the Bible. When we come across them, don't let them out of your sight. Lock onto those scriptures when you see those things. Because remember, the enemy that kills, steals, and destroys is going to bombard your mind again someday. And he's going to make you try to question that. And you've got to go, wait a minute. I've seen this through my eye gates where he says I'm forever forgiven. I see through my eye gates that by one sacrifice, he has made me perfect forever. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, let me tell you something. You cannot swallow a Krispy Kreme donut and have it turn into broccoli in your stomach. It's just impossible. Think about it for a second. As much as what goes into our mouth fuels our body, likewise, what goes into our mind fuels our behavior. The mouth is merely another gateway. That's what it is. 
What is true about the physical body is also true about the emotional side of man. I'm talking about the heart. I'm talking about the soul. I'm talking about the mind, the will, and the emotions. That which our hearts feed upon affects us in ways that we honestly cannot even measure. Who would think that potatoes, once swallowed, turns into pure sugar? Now, you wouldn't think that, would you? You see, that's what it does. See, your body knows what to do with it, and it just says, hey, let's turn this into sugar. In fact, it does more to your glycemic index than if you would have just sat there and ate pure granulated sugar. So what we do put into our mouth affects our bodies, and what we put into our mind affects the way we communicate. It affects the way we see things in God's Word. And that's why I'm so passionate about stuff in our hearts, stuff in our lives, full of daddy's promises, daddy's word. Friends, you know what wrong programming will have you do? It will have you straining at gnats and swallowing camels. That's what it does. You're picky about the littlest things, but you're swallowing a big old camel at the same time. Wrong programming. The commentary writer, John Gill, said it this way. He said, if the heart is right, so will the actions of men be. They are regulated by it. What's it? The heart. They will then spring from right principles and be directed to right ends and performed with right views. Great care, therefore, should be taken of the heart since so much depends on it. Listen, friends, if you want to change how a man behaves, then you must first change the way the man believes. And that's what the gospel of grace does. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you believe about something. The defense of the gospel imprints our hearts with a better covenant. When a man's constitution is transformed by beholding grace and by beholding love and by beholding innocence and by beholding his glory, then the man's communication will be changed as a result. But see, you know what? The world has it the other way. Change your communication, change your behavior, and then that will change your constitution. The constitution is the foundation of man. It's the very core of the man. It's our foundation. And so often we try to change the exterior things, and I always liken it to mowing dandelions rather than getting to the root of the problem. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we find these words. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Man, I, you can just get carried away. What a picture. Here's Isaiah, and he's got this vision that's opening for him. And it's not just a dream, friends. God has allowed him to look into the heavens. He is seeing Christ. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Oh, I love this high and lifted up. We sing songs, high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. He's high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. That is his glory. That is his personification. That is his innocence. That is his love. Everything that follows him and surrounds him. It says filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which are angelic beings. Now above this Lord that's seated there, he said above him stood the seraphim and each one of these seraphim had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he did fly, the Bible says. Look at this. One cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy. I mean, if you're an angel, what are you going to cry? 
what could you say? You're looking at Christ. You're looking at the Lord. And all they can keep saying is holy, holy, holy. And I don't think they stopped after they said it three times. Isaiah had to cut the message short. He had more chapters to write. He, but they're just saying holy, 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 infinitely crying for an eternity as they see the majesty of this beautiful Christ. Oh, it gets me so excited because you know what, Claudette? You're going to see him like that someday too. Bob, you're going to see him like that someday. Trevor, you're going to see him like that. Maritza, Jeffrey, Fred, you're all going to see him like that someday. What will your response be? Holy, 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 holy. Amen. Some of you might be saying, holy smokes, how did I get here? But that's beside the point. You're going to see him holy as he is, without defect, perfect in every way, beautiful, Precious, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then look what he says. The whole earth is full of his glory. We must never lose that thought. Listen, no matter how much chaos is going on in the world, the whole earth, he didn't say heaven was full of his glory. He said the whole earth is full of his glory. Let me ask you a question. What are you made out of? You are made out of the earth. You are made out of the dust of the ground. He said the whole earth, you are full of his glory. And the foundations, remember? I talked about the constitution a second ago. The constitution, the foundations of the threshold were moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think Isaiah's response is going to be? Remember, he's the one that's looking into this vision. What's his response going to be? Look, scriptures, look at it. Here's his response. Then said I, (laughs) oh, Isaiah, woe is me. Do you see the hand on the forehead? Woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Then the Bible says, then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal, (laughs) look at that, having a live coal, a hot coal, some scriptures say, a hot coal, we know what that looks like, a fiery hot coal. One of those seraphim was flying toward him with a hot coal, a fiery coal in his hands, a live coal, it says, in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs. I don't know. That's just weird picture, but somehow he reached in with these golden tongs or whatever and got that coal, you know, from off the altar. And what did he do to Isaiah? He touched my mouth with it and said, lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. What a thing to say. I mean, Hey, I just go, Hey, I was just watching a movie. I didn't know I was going to get my sins forgiven. I didn't know I was going to get my sin purge. Well, it has a lot to do with just the way you responded. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unclean. Listen, the seraphim didn't do this on their own. They don't do stuff on their own. They get their orders from Jesus. Otherwise, they'd be flying around doing stuff that Jesus would have to reel back in. and say, no, that ain't right. No, I didn't want you to do it. You're too soon on that. No, you're too late on this. You know, no, no. They get their orders from God. So, Why would the seraphim do something like that? Why would God do something like that? And I believe it was done so that Isaiah would have the confidence that he was without sin as he looked into the eyes of the king, the Lord of hosts. Friends, that's the way you and I are today before King Jesus, pure, 
innocent, undefiled, totally forgiven. So in this vision, what Isaiah does is he sees the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus. And as Isaiah's eyes fall on a grace and a love and an innocence and a holiness that he has never seen before, he has nothing to compare this to. He is immediately drawn to his own issues of life. You see, Isaiah had no problem with King Jesus. Holy, I agree. He had no problem with the seraphim. He had no problem with the coal. He had a problem with himself. He had a problem with all his people, the people that God had put him among. Listen, friends, he can only speak from the scroll that he's already swallowed through life. That's the only thing that can come out. You want to find out what's on the inside of a man, you cut him one time. You'll find out what's on the inside of him. I'm not talking physically, but you emotionally cut a man and you listen to his words. You'll find out what's on the inside of a man. You'll find out. <laughs> Again, what was Isaiah's response to the vision of the king, the Lord of hosts? I'm talking about Jesus. What was his response? His response was, I'm undone. I'm unclean. I'm not finished. I've got issues of life. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is still a very common response among believers today. Believers are still parroting Isaiah's cry. When we are under a finished work, we are never unclean. Don't you call unclean what God has called clean, friends. We are not under the old covenant. We're not under a sin by sin, lamb by lamb arrangement with God. We have been cleansed once for all. The prophet Isaiah was a man just like you and me. He had two arms and two legs. He had two feet and two hands, ten fingers and ten toes, two eyes, two lips, two ears, a nose, two lungs, a beating heart, two kidneys. He was a man just like you and me. But the difference between Isaiah and you and me is he was imprinted with a different covenant. Under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit came and went. Under the old covenant, a man was blessed when he obeyed. He was cursed when he didn't obey. You and I live under the covenant whereby the Holy Spirit does not come and go. He lives with us forever. The Bible says, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a comforter and he will be with you. He will abide with you forever. He does not come and go. He does not lift off and take off and leave you behind, friends. We are blessed because of what Jesus has done for us. We have been cleansed of all sin. We have been cauterized by his love. Take that home and meditate on that for a little while. Cauterized by his love. And we are sealed by the precious Holy Spirit of grace and truth until the day of redemption. I want you to see this truth here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Look at this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another Look at what cleanses us. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All doesn't mean just in terms of quantity. It means from start to finish. It reaches back into your past. It deals with your present. It takes care of your future. He cleanses us from all sins. Friend, I've got news for you. You can go ahead and sell your stock in King's Forge Charcoal because you won't need it anymore. We don't need hot coals. We've got the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we do. 
Go ahead and get rid of that stock. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we find these words. He says, when you believed, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the day of redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Isn't that beautiful? There's our covenant. There's our redemption, sealed, forgiven, forever. So our message is different. And if your message is not a new covenant message, then you have to take more in the eye gates. You have to take more into the ear gates of this finished work message. And eventually what will come out of your mouth, eventually what will come out of your action will parallel Jesus' new covenant. Those seraphim had six wings. Six is the number of man, for man was created on the sixth day. The six-winged seraphim that touched Isaiah's lips with a hot coal really is just a type and shadow of the refining work of the Holy Spirit. That's all it is. It's our ability to look back and see, there's the refining work of the Holy Spirit right there. The one who would appear as tongues of fire and would touch the tongues of those in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And what did they do? They spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Under the new covenant, we are not cleansed by hot coals. We are cleansed by the Holy Spirit. We are not cleansed by our own actions, our own behavior. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, like the scripture says, until the day of redemption. We no longer have to defend ourselves with the nonsensical cries of, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm unclean. Friends, we are a finished work through the defense of the gospel because the gospel is standing there to defend you the whole way. Even when you don't think like he thinks, the gospel never quits thinking about you the way the Father thinks about you, and he will defend you. This is where the fountainhead and wellspring of life begins. It begins in our understanding. It begins in knowing that our identity in Christ is that of cleansed and sealed. Cleansed and sealed. A child that is subjected to abuse and criticism will have issues flowing from his or her life as an adult. Does that make sense? I mean, you grow into shoes, you grow into adulthood, you grow into things. And what you had in your younger years, you carry with you. It's like DNA. It just doesn't change. What else would explain the way we think and, and act other than what we've seen through our eyes, what we've heard through our ears? All of this has shaped us into the man, the woman, the person that we are today. It's just a lifetime of traffic entering our ear gates and eye gates. But the good news is we can be changed. We can be healed. Emotional hurts and pains are healed as the defense of the gospel comes rushing to our aid. That's why I think it's so vitally important for us as even our children are growing is to begin to put the word into their hearts because it goes through their ears and drops down into the heart. Begin to put the word in through their eye gates. You see, their little hearts are tender and they're like little printing presses and they will literally become that which they're programmed with. Our message must be, son, daughter, you are holy, holy, Holy. You say, wait a minute, well, Mark. Isn't that what they said about Jesus? Yes. He says, as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. That's the word today, friends. 
We are as holy as Jesus is. We're not made holy by our actions. We're made holy by Jesus's body on the tree. I don't have a hard time believing that. If I looked only at my action, I'd go, no, no. No, no, not holy, holy, holy. Give me maybe one of the holies and that can come and go. No, we are holy, holy, holy because we are exactly like Christ. If a journalist wrote an article about you that was untrue and it damaged your reputation, it ruined your character, it just shattered your life, you wouldn't have a problem with the printing press, would you? You'd have a problem with the media press, wouldn't you? Absolutely. When actions and words spew from us that don't represent our true nature, it is not because we are evil. There is no evil in us. It's because of the residue that remains from old programming. That's all it is. It's finding its way out. Don't fall apart when that happens. Just go, Father, that is not me. That response was not me. Those words were not my character. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. We just keep taking more and more of this new covenant of grace into our hearts until we are literally surprised by our own words. I've told the story years ago, but I'll tell it again. Boy, I had a terrible mouth. As I was a cusser, man, before I got saved. Oh, yeah. And when I got saved, I cussed two times within six months, and I thought it was all gone, right? And then I slammed my finger in the door one day. Oh, man, it just about took the nail off. I pinched it in the door as I was closing. I was leaving my mama's apartment, and a four-letter word slipped out. And it had been about a year. Guess what the word was? It was ouch. That's the word that came out of me. And I thought, man, that was just about worth getting my finger slammed in the door because now I realize he took cussing out of my heart. And that was one of the things I said, Father, take cussing out of my heart. It's below me. It's not who I am. I don't want to misrepresent you. Take it out of my heart. And he said, son, look, just look at my word. I just don't wave a magic wand over people and say cussing's out of your heart and bad thoughts are out of your heart. It's not the way God works. You know, what we take in flushes out old ideologies, flushes out old mindsets, flushes out old residues that have been trapped inside of us for a long time, maybe since a child. So don't fall apart when that happens. We look to the defense of the gospel. The gospel says you're pure. The gospel says you're innocent apart from works. The gospel says you're righteous in my eyes. I am a huge proponent for defending the defenseless. Moreover, I'm a huge proponent for defending what's right. I would rather do what's right, though it costs me everything, than to do what's wrong and profit from it. I'll meditate on what I just said there. I would rather do what's right, though it costs me everything, than to do what's wrong and profit from it. Do you get that picture? If a guy said, I'll give you a million dollars if you'll just walk outside there and take the Lord's name in vain, I'd say, friend... You need to be saved. You need to be saved. There is nothing on the planet that would allure me to take my Savior's name in vain. I don't care what it is. You put my head on a chopping block, put a guillotine over my head, and my head's going to roll, friends, but I am not taking that name in vain. I cherish that name. I cherish that man. I cherish my salvation. I cherish his finished work. I cherish what he did for me on the cross. There's no way I'll trash that name. And I mean that. Amen. Amen. There are numerous passages that are weaved into the canon of scriptures that lay the heart of the Father on a red carpet runway, friends. Can you see Daddy's heart walking towards you? 
Can you see daddy's heart waving at you? Can you see yourself as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley draped across his arm? Can you see his crown of beauty? Can you see it? And this is what the father said to me last night. He said, son, no woman has ever become Miss America without great sacrifice. And I understood perfectly what he meant. You see, she's got to know something because she's going to get asked questions. She's got to have a worldview. She better keep her body in shape because she's going to put on a swimsuit. She better have a talent because you're going to need to sing or play an instrument or something. It costs her something. She's sacrificing something to be crowned with that. And what he said to me, it's the same thing with me, son. What God has done for us has come with great, great sacrifice, specifically the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Great sacrifice. Through the scriptures, we see the heart of the father as he defends the strangers and the widow and the orphan. Scriptures whereby he defends those that belong to him. Look at these words in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. And look at the heart of the father defending he says, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Look how good God is. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Friends, foreigners doesn't mean somebody just from another country. Foreigners is somebody with just a different message. Foreigner can be someone with just a different heart a different ideology. And he says, you are to love them. Now watch what I've done here. I love the stranger. I love the orphan. I love the widow. Now he says, now you love them like I love them. Friends, let me say something to you. Love was not designed with an off switch. Love was not designed with an off switch. And let me see if I can demonstrate this for you. On off, on, off, you love me, on. It's like the clapper, we're clapping on. You don't love me, we clap you off. You're gonna treat me nice, we clap on love. You don't treat me nice, we clap love off. You're good to me, I clap love on for you. You mistreat me, I clap love off for you. When it's convenient, I'll clap love on for you. When it's not convenient, though it costs me something, when it's not convenient, I clap love off for you. Friends, love was not designed with an off switch. It's the only switch I'm familiar with that doesn't have an off switch. It's love. It was designed to always be on. Loving the stranger, loving the widow, loving the foreigner, loving the orphan. That's what love looks like. There are no provisions for clapping love off. There is no provision for clapping love off. It must always stay on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, we find these words. This is a familiar set of scriptures, friends. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. I love this. It keeps no record of wrongs. Friends, that's a big one right there now. That's a big one right there because we like to bring up people's past. Like the man said to his friend one time, every time me and he was telling his buddy, every time me and my wife fight, she gets, 
historical. He said, don't you mean hysterical? No, he said, she keeps bringing up my past. We, we, you know, love is not supposed to be designed that way. It's supposed to keep no record of wrongs. It's supposed to always shine and be kind and love. And then it says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love never fails because it comes from God. That's what, right? And God is not a failure. In him, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. His love for us is demonstrated through his gift to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The central message of the gospel is rooted in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Love is a response. Love is a decision. And love is an action. Opportunities to love are deferred when waiting to be corroborated by feelings and emotions. Is that too tricky? In other words, if I feel like I'm going to wait and just see if I should love you, I'm going to wait till my feelings and my emotions corroborate that I'm supposed to love you, love will keep getting deferred. In fact, in many cases, it will be lost. Opportunities will be lost if we're waiting to operate by feelings and emotions. See, when Valerie gave away that money, that $8 she was talking about earlier, she did it based upon a word. She didn't base it upon a feeling or emotion. She did it based upon a word from the Father. And had she deferred it, she'd have missed out on that great opportunity. You'd never heard that story and been encouraged. Friends, God is not only the defense of his people, he's the defender of the gospel. The central message is love. Opportunities to love are deferred when waiting to be corroborated by feelings and emotions. If we are waiting to be driven by feelings and emotions, it makes about as much sense as saying thank you to a toad that said you're ugly. It would make no sense. We can't wait on feelings and emotions. We have to operate based upon what we already know to be true. His love for us. So I believe there are people, places, and things that we ought to defend. Friends, the gospel doesn't defund us. The gospel defends us. How does it do that? By drawing our hearts to Jesus' finished work. Now, this is where I wanted to go ultimately. I wanted to lay that foundation and then say this. At the top of the list, I believe we should defend the cry of the unborn. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court reached a landmark decision in which the court ruled that the Constitution of the United States would protect a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without government intervention and overreach and restriction. And I can tell you without equivocation that that decision was made by nine justices that did not counsel with God. Maybe there could have been one or two that would have. Justices who catered to their own feelings and emotions and human reasoning rather than the heart of God. Justices that made decisions based upon the way their own hearts had been imprinted. Justices that did not take into consideration the scriptures. I want you to see this scripture, Psalm chapter 127, verses 3 through 5. This is what the Father says. He says, Behold, Children are a gift of the Lord. Draw your attention hard to that word, gift of the Lord. 
The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. A quiver is where you put your arrows. Remember he said they're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. A quiver held six arrows. He's just saying, man, blessed is the man who has a whole bunch of kids. You don't necessarily have to have six, but he said, blessed is the man whose quiver is stuffed full. Now, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that I gave you a, some sort of special card, birthday card, Christmas card, whatever, special card for you. And inside that card was a $100 bill. You open up that card, you read it, you take that $100 bill out, you close the card, and you walk over to a trash can and you tear that $100 bill up in front of me and throw it in the garbage can. Let me ask you a question. Would you consider that dishonor? Would, would you feel like uh, you just dishonored me by doing that? Friends, isn't that what abortion clinics are doing with babies? You see, it's no longer seraphims with tongs, it's doctors with tongs. And these doctors are taking precious gifts of God, tearing them into pieces and throwing them in the garbage. As I was thinking about that last night, I, I mean, my heart just broke. And I thought, if that unborn baby could speak, what would it sound like? And from inside the womb, I heard the words, Woe is me! I'm undone! I have eyes! I have ears! I have a heart. I'm not an issue of life. I'm a tissue of life. I'm an arrow in the hands of a warrior. I'm a gift from God. Don't all lives matter? Am I not good news? Where is my defense of the gospel? Unfortunately, the church has been silent too long. For too long, she has walked around the issues of life and have not come to the defense of those that matter. Aren't you delighted that Jesus didn't walk around you? Amen. Friends, if you tear up a gift, the actions speak louder than words. You're not displaying the heart of a friend and you're not displaying the heart of the Father. If that has happened to you, if you've been a part of that at one time, there's no condemnation. All is forgiven in Christ. But I want you to remember on Tuesday, November 3rd, I want you to remember that babies are a gift from God. Please do not cast your vote for a candidate that does not treasure the cry of the unborn child. I've stood as a minister for a lot of years. Now, I typically don't touch on topics like this, but I'm going to start hitting on some of these more frequently through this series. Let me ask you a question. What does God think about the destruction of an innocent child, a child that's inside the womb? What would God think about that? Friends, his heart hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The only thing that's changed is the covenant. The heart that was beating in God in the Old Testament is the same heart. Look what he says in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. This is what his heart is. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. Isn't that an interesting scripture? 
But he says, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. He said, look, if you injure that child or you kill that child, it is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, I understand we're no longer under the old covenant. My point is this. Do you see the heart of the father concerning the child in the womb? That's what I want you to see. Yes, we're not under the covenant of eye for eye, although man will hold you under that, and, and rightfully so, probably. But do you see daddy's heart for the unborn child? Remember, he loves the widow. He loves the stranger. He loves the foreigner. He loves the orphan. And he loves the cry of the unborn. Since the time of that 1973 constitutional decision, there have been more than 60 million babies that have been slaughtered in the United States. 60 million is a staggering number. But when you begin to multiply that number, understanding there's been three generations. So the ones that were born in 1973, those millions of them grew up and had kids. And then their kids grew up and had kids. We're talking about several hundred million babies that have been killed simply because nine justices got into some sort of agreement and said, yes, let's kill the cry of the unborn. Let's silence the cry of the unborn. It's your choice. It's not our choice, friends. Children are a gift from God. Precious flowers that have lost their petals through surgical instruments in the womb. In addition to the unarguable number of infant deaths is the imprinting of the emotional trauma that continues to go on in many hearts. Women have to endure it sometimes for a lifetime. Trauma that shows up in the form of guilt and shame and regret and condemnation. This turns into the destruction of what we know as the nuclear family. This uh, destroys many lives. It puts people on medication sometimes for a lifetime. So you see, it's not just the babies. It has far-reaching effects. Over the next few messages, I want to highlight the Father's heart concerning the defense of the gospel. Defending the gospel shows up in things like defending the poor, defending the used, abused, and always refused. Defending our flag, defending our borders, defending our constitutional rights, defending family values, defending our freedom, defending the gospel. When we find ourselves defending something or someone, it's because we have been imprinted with an intrinsic value system that has shaped us on the inside so that we can hear the heart of Papa. We can see the heart of Papa and then give away the heart of Papa to people. My closing scriptures, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Friends, don't think it strange if chains come around you for Christ. Yes, he's broken every chain. Every chain that would bind us to the evil one, he's broken every single chain. Sometimes we're put into physical chains because we take a stand for the gospel. 
There are pastors out west today that have been told, if you open up your church, we're going to come in and fine you $20,000. And the pastor has instructed his people, do not revolt when they come to get me. We'll have church on Sunday. I'm standing for what I'm called to do. You say you're standing for our well-being. Well, I'm standing for the people's well-being too as God's ambassador and God's mouthpiece. And then he says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. You would think this would be a time when you would lose your confidence. But see, when you're doing what's right and you end up in some sort of chained situation, your confidence will grow. He said, I'm confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's the inspiration for this message. It comes right out of Philippians chapter one. And then the final thoughts, he says, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from this word today are these. There is no question that every single one of us are going to face issues. We're going to experience issues. It's just part of life. In times like these, we would do good to pay attention to God's words, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's entire flesh, one's whole body. Not only are they health to the body, but they're health to Kenosha. They're health to Minneapolis. Their health to Seattle, their health to Portland, their health to Washington, D.C., their health to Baltimore, their health to the entire nation. We allow his words to come through our eye gates and our ear gates and then take residence in our hearts. We are changed, listen to me, from the inside out and not the outside in, changed by right believing, not through right behavior. This is the message of grace, and this is the true gospel. When the enemy attempts to imprint us with lies and hatred, deception and condemnation, we remind ourselves that Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. In other words, in Christ, there is no off switch for his love for us. He loves us with an everlasting love, an eternal love, a love that took every one of our poor decisions into consideration when he saved us, a love that transcends our feelings and our emotions. Christ alone is our fountainhead of life. Christ alone is our wellspring of life. Christ alone is our starting point of life. And this kind of life begins, friends, not when the baby is born. This kind of life begins at conception. That's when life begins in the womb. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Friends, you and I, we're bought with a price. Therefore, let us glorify God with our bodies and let us glorify God with our babies. 
We have a responsibility to imprint our children and our world with the gospel of grace. Our message is not defund the church's voice, but rather to defend the church's voice, including the voice of the unborn child. I'm going to say something very profound. Let me say it this way. A man cannot swallow indifference and then regurgitate compassion. Now you pause and meditate on that for just a moment. Likewise, the church cannot swallow law and then publish a life-saving message. We are not mere printing presses that are void of emotions and impartial to feelings. We were made from the earth and we are full of His glory. Every color matters. Every tribe matters. Every tongue matters. Every nation matters. Every baby matters. And every life matters. This is the heart of Papa God. Friends, our woe is me. I am undone. I am unclean. Those days are history. See yourselves the way Papa sees you. Again, as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley draped across Jesus' heart. He may not have walked down a runway, but he did walk up a hill called Calvary. And who did he do that for? He did that for you. He did that for me. His ability to embrace us like this came with great sacrifice so that the fruit of the womb would be his reward. In Christ, not a single baby is lost. In Christ, not a single sheep is lost. In Christ, not a single man, boy, woman, girl is lost. Friends, this is the defense of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daddy, I thank you, Father. I've stood here, and I believe I've tapped into your heart. I thank you for this download that you gave me, Daddy. That all life is important. Every life is precious. And Daddy, we have this intrinsic responsibility that grace doesn't just say sit on the sidelines and do nothing. We do nothing for our salvation, but there's plenty of work for us to do. And I thank you, Father, as we unite together, as we come together and we release a life-saving message, a message that drips into the heart, begins to change the behavior of man. It begins to change the way a man thinks. That is the true gospel. So I thank you, Father, for that. I thank you, Father, that we have set our bearing on a course in this country that in November when we cast our vote, we'll cast it for righteousness, Daddy. And I thank you, Father, that this tide that we're seeing right now, this wave of destruction, this wave of violence is going to turn and be sent back out into the sea. And I thank you, Father, that you have a plan to rescue those. Every color matters. Every tribe matters. Every tongue matters. Every nation matters. Every neighborhood matters. And Father, we thank you as the Holy Spirit is poured out in such great, great measure as he canvasses the neighborhoods and he begins to save them from the guttermost to the uttermost. Daddy, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that the church's voice is being lifted in this season right now. That this is not a black and white issue. This is a darkness and light issue, Daddy. And I want to thank you that light always wins over the darkness, Daddy. Light has no off switch. Love has no off switch. Grace has no off switch. Once you have seen it, you cannot unsee it. In Jesus' name, amen.